Hello, and welcome to The Framing Effect. I am your host, Jerry Zhang. This show seeks to view the incredible implications of behavioral economics and business through undiscovered lenses. The Framing Effect in the context of behavioral economics is a term describing the fluidity of information. By framing the how, when, and where information is communicated, we will see how seemingly unrelated events and people are all connected by the overarching forces of different industries. Join me in conversations with experts in fields not traditionally business affiliated to find out how the decisions of individuals may affect the world. On our fifth episode of The Framing Effect, we are joined by Jim Rogers, co-founder along with George Soros of the Quantum Fund one of the most successful hedge funds in the history of investing. After retiring in 1980, he has traveled around the world twice. Today we discuss his background, his journeys through developing countries, and the future of East versus West development. Hello everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of The Framing Effect. Today we are joined by Mr. Jim Rogers, a avid adventurer and investment biker, and the co-founder of one of the most successful hedge funds in the history of investing, the Quantum Fund, which has averaged a return of over 4,200%. Now, Mr. Rogers, how's the weather over in Singapore? I'm fine. Well, I'm, you know, Singapore is on the equator, so it's always hot or hot and raining. <laughs> Today, it's hot and cloudy. Yeah. When it rains, it doesn't rain long. Yeah. Southeast Asia always has that humid weather. <laughs> I, well, I like it here. It's great. Yeah, it's good. Now, um, just for a little bit about your background, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be? Because I know your uh, adventure has been taking you far and wide and you've been very successful. Well, I grew up in a small town uh, in the backwoods of Alabama. My phone number was five. In fact, it was that small uh, and that isolated. Uh, so I wanted to see the world. People who grew up in places like that often want to see the world. I was one of them. Uh, when I, one of my long ambitions and early goals was to make enough money to retire soon so I could see the world, especially I wanted to go around the world on a motorcycle because that's a very good way to see the world. So I did it. I retired when I was 37. I made a little bit of money and set off to see the world. In those days, it wasn't easy. There was still the Soviet Union and Red China and things like that. But I kept trying and finally got permission and, and did it a couple of times. Once on a motorcycle, once in a car. Yeah. Um, right. So as you mentioned, you retired at the incredible age of 37. But uh, what is like a big difference that you would notice between when you were on Wall Street and what Wall Street is like now? Because I'm sure it changed a lot. Well, sure, technology changes everything. Uh, you know, the way we travel has changed a whole lot in the last 100, 200 years. There were no railroads 200 years ago, no airplanes, no nothing. Uh, no, Wall Street's the same way. Everything was on paper. It, trading was done by pieces of paper that was sent around Wall Street every morning. Uh, now everything's on the computer, et cetera. The New York Stock Exchange is... Basically, all stock exchanges around the world have disappeared because everything is by computer now. But the basics are still the same. You have people's emotions uh, getting involved. You have some people doing a lot of research and making successful investments and a lot of people doing being lazy and sloppy and making bad investments. Uh, none of that has changed. You can go back 200 years ago. In the city of London or Amsterdam or other places, you will see the same things. 
human beings have always been the same for better or for worse. Yeah. So like you said, with technology being a big part of the change in the past couple of decades, but now we have artificial intelligence and, you know, it's getting so advanced with ChatGPT being able to make calculated decisions and, you know, act like a human. How do you see that impacting the future of the market? Well, I don't know if these machines have no emotions at all. I'll be very surprised because the input comes from human beings. And all of our input is based on what we know, and we all are subject to, whether we know it or not, emotions and miscalculations and lack of judgment, lack of doing research. So I'm sure it will make things faster, just as trading is now... I mean, you and I are sitting in two different continents. That could not have happened 100 years ago. Likewise, you and I could be trading stocks anywhere in the world, uh, even though we never leave our home. Uh, That is a major, major change. In my day, everybody had to go to Wall Street or the city of London in order to trade and to work and to be in the investment business. That is no longer the case. We could be anywhere. We don't have to go to Wall Street or the city of London or anywhere. We can do this in Iowa if we want to. We can do this in Guatemala. Uh, And there are people doing it now. That's a major change. But still, the basics are the same. Supply and demand, greed, laziness, uh, all of those things still exist. Yeah, indeed. Now, getting into a bit more of the financial side of what I want to ask with you today. Uh, recently, the market has seen some uh, you know, turmoil, um, like Guatam, Adani's uh, various firms have dropped in about $45 billion in value just in a couple of days after the Hindenburg report came out with a extensive document detailing the uh, different levels of, I guess, fraud that the Adani group has committed. And the Adani Group has partnered with various banks, um, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, and Barclays. And as we've seen in the past couple of weeks, those major banks have also taken huge uh, like pay cuts to their major officials. How do you see the situation playing out forward? And what do you think caused all of this? Well, I have not read the report. I do not know the companies at all, other than the fact that they're huge and have been successful. All I know about the report is that it alleges X, Y, and Z. So I have absolutely no basis to say yes or no. I do know that in my experience, short sellers are usually more accurate and successful than the targets because they have to do a lot of research, a lot of homework, not many people sell short, so the few who do have been historically unique and usually successful. But other than that, I have absolutely no clue. I see that in this morning's newspaper that both are saying this, that, and the other. Um, I don't know the facts. If you know the facts, if you can read it and figure it all out, you will make a lot of money because if it's wrong, you can buy the shares. If it's right, you can add to the shorts because if the shorts are right, the company's in serious trouble. If the company's right, they're going to make a fortune. I mean, the company's going to make a fortune. Mm -hmm. Now, um, let's move into your experiences in investment biker. So 
what was like your most exciting or memorable moment you've had on your journeys? Well, <laughs> I, don't think there's an, I don't think there's an answer to that question because the whole thing was very, very exciting. You know, every day if I wake up New York anywhere and I go to the left or the right, I more or less know what's going to happen. But every day when I woke up on that trip, I had absolutely no clue <laughs> what would be happening five minutes from now. Uh, and that's an ex that's one of the reasons I did it. I wanted the adventure. I wanted the excitement, et cetera. Um, everything. I mean, I guess one of the things that pops to mind is we were held hostage in the Congo for eight or nine days at one time. That was looking back on it exciting. I'm not sure exciting is the right word, right adjective at the time. Uh, but we had uh, lots of experiences. That's one reason I did it. I wanted the adventure. I wanted the excitement. I wanted the challenges. Uh, I wanted the discoveries. And that's why I did it a second time. I did our first trip was two years around the world, but it wasn't enough. So I went again for three years. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you made it out safely out the Congo. <laughs> and uh, just a I little hope bit everybody will see the world. It'll be good for the world. It'll be good for them. Yeah. Um. Just like a little off the side question, in the second time you did the trip, you went in a uh, modified Mercedes truck. Yeah, that's a pretty yes, interesting yes, car. Yes. I had done it on a motorcycle the first time, so I wanted a different experience. I wanted a convertible. Uh, I didn't want to just go in a car or a truck or something. So I, Mercedes and I special made a special it was an SLK body, uh, which is a sports car body, and a G-Wagon chassis. That's the, the high-end four-wheel drive diesel, diesel truck uh, SUV they make. So it was, a, in the end, a good combination. Hmm. <clears throat> now, uh, recently you've talked about um your investments in uzbekistan and i'm sure you know with going around 116 countries 245,000 kilometers you visited so many developing countries so what made you invest in uzbekistan well i have been to uzbekistan two or three times uh, it's a very interesting place historically and uh, as far as tourist sites are concerned uh, but it, under the Soviets, it was a disaster. Everything under the Soviets was a disaster. It was one of the Soviet republics. But in the last few years, um, a new group has come to power in Uzbekistan. And they say they're running the country the way you and I, or at least I would run the country. They're opening the markets, et cetera. If it's accurate, Uzbekistan is going to be a very exciting place. They have vast natural resources great location for trade and commerce and tourism. It's an astonishing tourism country. So if I'm right, and if they're doing what they say they're doing, it's probably going to, and, and it's undiscovered. Not many people can even find Uzbekistan on a map, much less invest there. Uh, it's going to be a very good, good opportunity. Hmm. What do you think about the other parts of Central Asia and maybe the Indian subcontinent? Do you see a, a rise in their development as well? Well, Kazakhstan is a, has huge natural resources and they 
periodically you do the right thing. So it may be, an, I do not have investments in Kazakhstan at the moment. Uh, so it could be a, an interesting place, but most of them could be. Uh, most of them have lots of natural resources. They are somewhat isolated, but that's historic rather than uh, geographics. They could be very open to the outside world. So they're probably going to be great opportunities in, in everywhere in that part of the world, but especially at the moment, Uzbekistan, from what I know. Mm -hmm. Now, during your initial motorcycle trip, I think you uh, visited Qingdao, China, a couple of times. And I was born there, so I'm very curious about what you thought about Qingdao and your experience in China. Well, I'm very optimistic about China. I first went to China in 1984. I was terrified because, you know, American propaganda all my life had said that the Chinese are evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, dangerous people. So I figured I'd get shot when I got off the plane. Didn't take me long traveling around China to realize, wait a minute, these are hardworking, educated, you know, smart people, innovative. And I realized that China was on the rise again. China is the only country in world history that's been great three or four times. I mean, Rome was great once, Egypt was great once, Great Britain was great once, but China's been great three or four times. China's also collapsed and been a catastrophe three or four times. But every time they have, after a few decades or centuries, they've turned around and risen to the top again. I can see that that was happening uh, despite the propaganda. I mean, since then, of course, everybody can see, wait a minute, China's pretty successful. So we all know that now. Uh, Qingdao was a wonderful place. It's right there on the sea. Great beer. I mean, I, anyway, heard of Qingdao because of the beer. Yeah. You know, the Germans, the Germans went there a hundred odd years ago and started making beer. And it was good beer, still is good beer. And Qingdao became famous in many parts of the world for its beer. But there's a lot more there, as you know, as I presume you know. It's a very interesting and dramatic city. Yeah. And the Germans take it over and, you know, they made beer and made the infrastructure pretty good. So, I don't know. <laughs> so the architecture, too. I mean, it's amazing that, um, you know, colonialists, whichever nationality they were, often left some good things. Hmm. And in Qingdao, they left the beer. Yeah. <laughs> Which is still good beer. Yeah. I've never had it, but maybe someday. <laughs> um, when you get older or when you travel more, have some Qingdao beer. Yeah, when I go back. <laughs> now, I also saw uh, you guys have a Billy Billy page. And for the listeners that might not know, Billy Billy is like a, the YouTube of China, I guess. And um, I saw your daughters were speaking like perfect Mandarin, which is very impressive. But so I see that you must hold like a little bit of um, importance to learning the language. So I was wondering how you would compare like the ceilings of the development of the West versus the East. Well, once I realized that China was on the rise, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s, I would often be in the U.S. and I would say on TV and places, everybody should teach their children and grandchildren Mandarin because it will be extremely important in the 21st century. In those days, of course, everybody said, no, 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 Japanese, Japanese, Japanese. Right? And I kept saying, no, Chinese. Anyway, 
Then I had children. I said, oh, gosh, what do I do now? I've been saying this for many years. So I got a, a Chinese governess to live with us. And I told her to never speak English, only speak Mandarin with this little girl. And so the little girl grew up thinking, well, some people speak like this and some people speak like she thought everybody was that way. I mean, she now knows, of course, but they grew up with two native languages, Mandarin and English. And for whatever reason, Mandarin has become perfect. The CCTV, the Chinese TV people have taken them to Beijing three or four times and had special shows about them. And I, I asked why, and they said, well, you know, they speak better Mandarin than we do. And then we find it amazing that two kids with blue eyes speak better Mandarin than the TV people in China. Yeah. So for some reason, it has worked. It doesn't mean they're going to be successful. It doesn't mean anything. You can ask me in 25 years. But at the moment, they both speak perfect Mandarin. Hmm. I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> but uh, just recently, the... Uh... I guess a couple of weeks ago, the Chinese population shrunk for the first time in several decades. And that's been an increasing fear with the, uh, I guess, the population demographics are getting more old, which is happening in a lot of Asian countries. How do you see that? Uh, like, how, how do you think that will impact the economic side of the country? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, Japan's population has been declining since 2010, so we have an example that we can watch, get to, get some idea of what's going to happen. Um, but China still has a billion, 400 million people. There's still a few a few Chinese around. The, the chopsticks market is not going to disappear anytime soon. Uh, they Many Asian countries are having this experience. Korea is a disaster, as you probably know, demographically anyway. Um, we will see how it's all going to work out. Uh, China is somewhat artificial because they started with a one-child policy, which they have changed. But it's expensive to have children, as more and more people know. And more and more of us are getting selfish and don't want to have to spend the money and the time on children. But... I, I would suspect that this will be a, looking back in a two or 300 years, this will be a period in demographics where population did decline for a while, but then they, something will happen, prosperity or something, and people will start having babies again. Mm -hmm. I guess it does go in cycles where it dips and then goes up again. So, yeah. Well, we will see. I don't know. Uh, but I do know that most historically people do like to have children. Now, part of that was because they needed labor. They needed somebody to take care of them. We still need somebody to take care of us, but not quite the same way as we did before. Yeah. And I'm seeing that you've written a couple of um, books about the Japanese economy in the past couple of years. Yeah. And I'm sure you've, uh, you know, like, how the current Japanese economy is losing trust and the Japanese currency, the yen, is currently 130 to the dollar, which has uh, basically declined in value by a lot. So how do you see the future of the Japanese economy? Well, as I said before, Japan's population has been declining since 2010. 
That's a long time now, and it doesn't seem just going to get better, going to, going to change, going to get improved, because the Japanese don't particularly like foreigners, and they have they've started letting in a few immigrants, but not many, so for not enough anyway. Um, I mean, Japan is a wonderful, wonderful country. I love the country, but population is declining, and debt is going through the roof. It's a high cost place to do business, and so. I don't see much hope for the Japanese as circumstances stand today, but if they change, if they start having babies, if they let in immigrants, if they stop spending so much money, things could get better. But at the meantime, on present tra trajectories, Japan is a serious, serious problem. If you're 10 years old in Japan, you should leave. And you better learn, better learn martial arts because you know, in 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, things are going to be really bad. And countries that usually have bad economic problems have bad social problems. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a very um, exciting country, though. I love Japan very much. I hate to see uh, it happening. It's a lot of culture there, and certainly it's a great country to visit. Yeah, I was wondering, a lot of good things. Yeah. I was wondering why you chose to live in Singapore. Is it because of the finance or other aspects? No, uh, we tried China, but uh, China is extremely polluted, was then anyway, less polluted now. So uh, Singapore is not polluted, and in Singapore they speak English and they speak Mandarin. I don't speak English, I mean, I don't speak Mandarin, so it seemed to be a good choice. So far it's been very good for us. That's good. And that's all the questions that I have prepared today. Oh, except actually, for all the young people like myself who are um, interested in maybe pursuing economics or business or finance, what advice could you give to the youth today? Well, the first thing I would strongly suggest is be sure you learn a second language uh, because in your lifetime, it's going to be more and more important. I obviously suggest Mandarin, uh, but I mean, there are other languages besides, I mean, Spanish, for instance, is a widely spoken language and it's a Romance language. It will give you a basis in other languages like French or Italian or something. My main thing is learn another language, but also I guess second is to figure out what you love the most. Don't do what other people tell you. Uh, you know, at one point I thought I was going to be a doctor, but that's what people told me to do. Thank goodness I didn't. At some one point I came to my senses. I discovered Wall Street and I and fell in love. And so I went to Wall Street, fortunately. But the main advice, my experience is figure out what you love. Do not do what your teachers or friends or parents tell you. Figure out what you love. And if people laugh at you, you're probably right. That's probably the very right place to be. So figure out what you love and then pursue it. And don't listen to the other people. Mm -hmm. well, that's great advice. And that's all the questions I have today. So thank you so much for taking your time and sitting down for this conversation. Well, thank you, Jerry. Maybe I'll see you in Qingdao someday and we can drink a Qingdao beer or two. Another special thanks to Mr. Jim Rogers for participating in this episode today. And thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at The Framing Effect PC. See you next time and stay curious.